0: This episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from 350.org, The Green News Report, The Bugle, Counterspin, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, On Point, Truth Dig Radio, The Young Turks, and The Daily Show.
1: The People's Climate March will take place two days before President Obama and world leaders attend a climate summit at the UN.
2: Climate change will bring more extreme weather and action is
3: now more urgent than ever. Millions of people around the world gather in the largest
4: climate action march in history. The biggest gathering seeking to address climate change ever. 2,000
5: rallies in 162 countries. From Paris, Melbourne, Australia, Rio de Janeiro. And
6: the activists are filling the streets to demand action on climate change.
5: We
7: are here because we are redefining this moment, this movement, this time.
5: I want to thank all of the marches today for coming together and taking a stand. We need you
8: also a
9: massive people's march i hope the leaders of the world listen we're the first generation to feel the impacts of climate change and, and the last to do anything about people, more people, more it Time don't give up
10: the fight our citizens keep marching
11: we cannot pretend we do not hear them. We have to answer
5: the call.
12: We're near the very front of the People's Climate March, and the sign behind me reads, Front Lines of Crisis, Forefront of Change. When we, uh, as activists, as as people of faith who really care about this, step out and do something bold, it creates the space for others to step out and be bold.
13: Final estimates put the People's Climate March in New York City on Sunday at about 400,000 people, way over estimates, stretching over 25 city blocks. Tens of thousands more in satellite rallies in cities all around the world, demanding bold action at the special United Nations Climate Summit in New York.
12: The march in New York City was amazing. They actually had to st- Stop it 10 blocks early because it took so long for uh, the paraders to get through. And, of course, it was covered by really almost no one, at least as far as the networks go, which is amazing to me. Can you imagine if there were that many Tea Partiers protesting against climate action? It would be wall to wall on every network.
13: Although we should point out NBC Nightly News was the only evening news show to cover the People's Climate March.
12: Amazing.
13: There was a big breakthrough at the special UN Climate Summit this week. It came from China, which is facing unrest at home over record pollution. For the first time ever, China has pledged that they will cap their emissions and have them peak and then begin falling, quote, as early as possible, maybe even as soon as 2020. That's a really big deal.
12: That is a big deal, although I suspect it won't stop the Republican talking points that China is doing nothing. Let me remind listeners, no matter what China does, person for person, the U.S. is still the largest emitter of greenhouse gas pollution in the world.
13: United Nations delegates praised the Special Climate Summit for building trust between nations in preparation for treaty negotiations next year. And there was some progress, like new funding and technology to assist poor nations to adapt to climate change and stronger mechanisms to end deforestation. But environmental groups noted correctly that the current country pledges to cut emissions are still Still not enough to prevent global temperatures from rising more than the agreed-upon 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Pledges, just don't cut it, says Peter Galvin, founder of the Center for Biological Diversity on MSNBC.
12: Well, we should be looking for specific binding emissions cuts from different countries. And right now we don't have that. We have uh, vague, vague words. Uh, you know, the European countries are a bit skeptical of committing to additional uh, carbon reductions until the U.S. does. And so it's really critical that the U.S. actually lead on this issue. And, yeah, climate journalist, expert turned advocate Bill McKibben said something very similar. We're not getting anywhere near tackling this problem and the kind of things the president was talking about today were were pretty small potatoes.
13: And now U.S. cabinet members have fanned out this week to make the economic case for climate action in the U.S. Here's Secretary of State John
8: Kerry. It doesn't cost more to deal with climate change. It costs
0: more to ignore it.
13: Treasury Secretary Jack Lew.
0: If we fail to make changes
12: now, it will be much more costly to deal with the problem later.
13: Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Gina McCarthy also focused on the economic costs of climate change. The thing is we don't have to choose between a healthy environment in a healthy economy
12: well the administration officials were on message this week on that score and that's all well and good for those big government officials but what about the guy on the ground what about the private businessmen what about the guy who has to answer to shareholders and make a profit here's Tim Cook CEO of Apple talking about exactly that
14: so we're now the largest private owner of a solar farm in the nation maybe maybe in the world And so now, if you look at our corporate, uh, facilities, we're at 94% renewable. And we're, we're chipping away at trying to, to get the last 6%. And it's, it's just, it's great for the environment. And by the way, it's also good for economics. Mm -hmm. It's, it's both.
12: Oh, uh, never mind then.
13: And it's good for both the private and the public sectors, as EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy pointed out. Since President Obama took office, wind energy has tripled and solar has grown tenfold. That's thousands of jobs that cannot be shipped overseas.
12: Right, but if they cannot be shipped overseas, then American corporations won't be able to increase their profits. And, of course, isn't that what all of the climate denial in this country is all about?
13: Actually, it's all about protecting the profits of just one sector, the fossil fuel industry.
14: The current system is designed for profit, not human needs. People must rise up and revolt human needs. Over profit. over profit. Every song I've written is about more than music. We don't have to be living in this system I can prove that You heard of people's movement in the people's music revolution. Expect the current system to make solutions. Money is building prisons on paying the teachers more. Stop working for profit, start working to ensure our people's needs are met, then we wouldn't have the poor. The
15: poor. Top story this week, the march of the protesters. How to save the earth by walking all over it. And uh, last Sunday, uh, there were huge climate marches all over this planet. I don't know about any other ones, but this one definitely (laughs) had some huge climate marches all over it. And the biggest one, again, was right here in New York, Andy. That's right. The Big Apple comes through again. When we do something, we do it eye-catchingly huge. (laughs) Whether it's a slice of cheesecake or a climate change march, we will do it on a scale that will make you think, how is that even logistically possible? (laughs) Um, Now, apparently around 300,000 people hit the streets of New York, to try and focus the world's attention on global warming, which is interesting, Andy, were it not for the fact that every single day in this city, there are eight million people on the same streets trying to focus the world's attention on the fact that they're <laughs> f***ing walking here! <laughs> <laughs> they're f***ing walking here! Can't you see I'm walking here! <laughs> was anyone we're, hold- doing that uh, was we're doing that every day. We're doing that every day,
2: Was anyone holding that up as a banner, or not?
15: Well, I think that's the next step, isn't it? <laughs> Walk around with placards saying, I am walking here. <laughs> and. Uh, Somebody get me a quaffy. <laughs> and do you think it's worked? Because uh, I
2: was reading about this and I came to the conclusion that um, the planet is, is, is one of those kind of things that's never fully appreciated until it's gone, uh, like uh, a parachute or. A justice system <laughs> or a single scoop of ice cream or the concept of yep. hope. You know, I, I, I really like the planet, John. So I was, I was pleased that New Yorkers are uh, stepping, uh, stepping up to this plate.
15: Well, the events organisers here estimated the turnout was actually more than 300,000, making it the largest or one of the largest environmental related protests in the history of the US. And at one point in the early afternoon, the march apparently came to a complete halt. Uh, because the entire 2.2-mile route was full to capacity, meaning that at that point, it wasn't so much a march anymore, it was a stand. (laughs) It was the largest ever stand for climate change in US history. And it really was an incredible sight to see people so... Energized uh, over it. There was even a minute's noise at one point. Uh, but I can tell you who was not so keen on the whole thing, Andy. My dog. Um, <laughs> she really was not sure what to think about the thousands of people who were suddenly outside where she lives, banging things, blowing things, and waving signs around. I think that when she sees a protest sign, she really just sees a criminal misuse of a stick. <laughs> but you can see. <laughs> You can see in her eyes her thinking, take that placard off it, turn the pole sideways and put it in your mouth. (laughs) It's not rocket science. And it feels great.
2: (laughs) But also, is it not true that when you got that dog, how how old was she? Was just a couple of months
15: old? She's three. Oh, yeah, just
2: a couple of months. And uh, did you not buy her as a a sort of welcome to the family presence uh, a large number of (laughs) shares in ExxonMobil as well?
15: I I did. I did because, you know, it made sense. (laughs) I was thinking about her future, Andy. I think the other thing that she was concerned about, uh, I think she probably agreed with almost everything the protesters were marching for. I just think there was undeniably a selfish part of it, which very much resented the fact that it interrupted her regular routine of taking a quiet early morning dump <laughs> in the car. <park. laughs> and it threw her off for the rest that's of the right. day. I think, you know, it's thinking about long-term rather than short-term, but when the short-term's that important, you can see why she was pissed. Yeah, that's
2: right. She had to change her emissions, and that's, that's a, a strong message to take away <laughs> <laughs>
15: So it's achieved some change, I guess. The language uh, used at the UN uh, uh, after the climate march has been strong, but of course the UN specialises in non-binding strong language, Andy. (laughs) They've created some of the best sounding suggestions (laughs) in human history. Uh, Ban Ki-moon said humanity had to act because, and I quote, ''This is the planet where our subsequent generations will live. There is no Plan B because we do not have Planet B.'' No plan B. Speak for yourself, Moon. That <laughs> is nothing but a failure of imagination on your part. What about moon colonies? Floating ecodomes. <laughs> Everyone living underground in Warrens. I'm not saying any of those are plausible, Andy, but he didn't talk about plausible <laughs> plan Bs. He just said plan Bs. Also, I'm going to call bullshit on it, John, but just in the same week, India
2: has put a satellite into orbit around Mars... Becoming the fourth right. nation to do so at a cost of just yep. 45 million pounds. That is a bargain for a Mars trip. To put that in context, that is enough to pay the daily minimum wage to about, round about 45 million Indians, um, to only one day. So that makes it a bargain. Or to put it another way, it's the cost of a toilet seat in billionaire Mukesh Ambani's billion dollar house in Mumbai. Either way, a bargain. But this, John, is the first step to India setting up a colony on Mars. I kind of think they might have on other more important national problems, such as the inability of their batsmen to construct a proper test match innings. But anyway, let's not be judgmental. <laughs> and furthermore, scientists have discovered a cloud-free atmosphere on a distant planet the size of Neptune... The smallest exoplanet ever to reveal its chemical composition, John. It's got water vapour on it. This suggests that we could live there. This is the get-out-of-jail-free card that Ban Ki-moon is so studiously ignoring. A new planet we can take over. Currently designated HATP-11b. It's not a great name for a planet, but, you know, we could fund the whole expedition by selling the naming rights. Um, Also, it's only 124 light years away. Now, that's no biggie. I reckon light probably isn't as fast as it used to be. These things get old and out of shape. It's uh, about one quadrillion kilometres away. It's a bit of a hike, but... They used to think it was a long way from London to Edinburgh, and now we are umbilically joined forever. Uh, And it's four times the width of our home world, which just to me makes it sound like four times as much room for parties. So
15: this is the future, John. We have a plan B. President Obama, in his speech, uh, said nobody gets a pass on climate change uh, to the stifled guffaws of the companies in the background <laughs> <laughs> sitting behind him. <laughs> oh, this guy's hilarious. <laughs> we don't get him. Oh, carry on. Sorry, sorry. Uh, he he went, then went on to say, we recognise our role in creating this problem. We embrace our responsibility to combat it. I think he might be wildly misusing the word embrace there, Adam. (laughs) It's it's a pretty reluctant embrace of that responsibility here in the US, to put it mildly. It's really the kind of embrace you give to someone who you wish would just f***ing go away. (laughs) In fact, America embraces the responsibility to end climate change the way a wrestler embraces another wrestler. (laughs) It might look affectionate if you're not really watching them closely, but if you pay closer attention, he's actually trying to choke the other wrestler unconscious.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And also, you know, it's all in arranged way in advance, so there's nothing you can do about <laughs> the end result. Uh, this was the first world leaders' meeting on climate change for five years since the 2009 yes. meetings collapsed in what can only be described as hilarious political slapstick. Five years ago, no point rushing back into these things, and we had 120 different government leaders, each making a four-minute speech. I, for mm-hmm. one... Cannot wait for that DVD box set to come out. That is going to be absolutely unmissable. But, of course, they were all overshadowed because one man who is not a government leader made a speech, and he is A, famous, and B, pretty. And that man, of course, was uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, um, who said this. He said, you can either make history or be vilified by it. A statement which I'm sure certain prominent 20th century European despots would strongly argue with, having proved that it's possible <laughs> to both make history and be extremely vilified by it.
15: Yeah, he spoke to the UN, Leonardo DiCaprio, sporting a beard, and you know an actor is serious, Andy, when they put their beards on. (laughs) Facial hair obscuring an objectively perfect face is a clear request to be taken seriously. (laughs) Leonardo DiCaprio is clearly saying, ''I know you cannot be trusted to focus on anything other than my boyish skin and chiseled charm, so I will temporarily cover that up with unkempt whiskers, until you have listened to what I have to say, which you will, for you know what lies beneath these bristles. (laughs) Respect my face, but do not be distracted by it.'' That's what he's saying, Andy. He, he, he addressed the delegate saying, I pretend for a living, but you do not. And I guess, I get what he's trying to say <laughs> there, Andy, but I honestly don't think he's giving global politicians the performance <laughs> jobs they do. <laughs> Absolutely. They can put in some pretty <laughs> self-serving performance <laughs> skills once in a while. Um, he, uh, he also said, because the
2: world's uh, scientific community has spoken and they have given us our prognosis, if we do not act together, we will surely perish. Which does suggest that... If we do act together, we will not perish, John. DiCaprio (laughs) is offering us the immortality of his own youth. Yes. Yes. What a hero.
15: Respect the beard. (laughs) Respect (laughs) it.
2: He also said clean air and water and a livable climate are inalienable human rights. Mm-hmm. All right, Lenin, now try making a f***ing profit out of it. Not so easy. Petrol, whiskey and summer holidays, also inalienable human rights, much more lucrative. So you can see where the business priorities might lie.
3: We are doing business.
16: Hundreds of thousands of people marched in New York City on September 21st to demand action on climate change. It happened on a Sunday morning. That's when the media elite gather on the network chat shows to discuss what they see as the important issues of the day. The largest climate change action ever didn't make the cut. There were other, more important matters. Like Meet the Press host Chuck Todd's explanation that the partisan divide in this country boils down to the difference between Chick-fil-A and Starbucks. There was one exception. Nation editor Katrina Vanden Heuvel, a guest on ABC's This Week, got in a word.
13: A catastrophic climate crisis, which the Pentagon has called a clear and emerging danger. There are 100,000 people marching outside this
5: uh, studio this, today because of that.
16: But it wasn't just the Sunday shows. The march got very little TV attention. NBC Nightly News stood out for filing a report on the day of the march. And that was pretty much it. Which poses the question, if this isn't a good time to cover the climate crisis, when will be?
14: I've seen some things that a man just can't ignore And this world's gonna see what I'm standing for I've kept my I can't hold my
9: tongue anymore
5: Organizers estimate some 400,000 people took part. Democracy Now! did this three-hour broadcast from the historic march, from the launching point of the march. We're going to turn to highlights from that special. Just before the march began, I interviewed Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who's considering a run for the White House in 2016.
14: With about 1,000 Vermonters and several hundred thousand Americans who understand that it is already causing devastating problems in the United States and around the world that will only get worse if we do not act aggressively uh, to cut carbon and transform our energy system away from fossil fuels to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. This is a huge issue. It's a planetary crisis. We've got to act, and we have to act boldly
5: signs that and one of the mantras here is we need system change not climate change what does that mean to you?
14: Well of course you need climate change I mean you know we are the scientific community tells us we have a narrow opportunity to move you have to do that but you also have to change the system because I mean among many other things uh, one of the reasons that we have virtually no Republican in Congress who even acknowledges the reality of climate change because of the role of money in politics so we are not going to change politics in America unless we we, you know, deal with the Koch brothers and the other billionaires who are now trying to buy elections. Uh, furthermore, if we live in a society which is based on simply uh, purchasing, 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 consumerism, 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 more and more development without understanding sustainability, you have long-term problems.
5: How do you deal with money in politics?
14: Well, you, first of all, you do is overturn uh, this disastrous Supreme Court decision called Citizens United, which gave a green light to the Koch brothers and the other billionaires to buy elections. Uh, the second thing that, How
5: do you overturn it?
14: Through a strong grassroots movement. We had a vote uh, a week ago which the media forgot to cover. New York Times didn't cover it all in which every single Republican voted against allowing us to proceed to a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. So that's number one. That's what you have to do. Uh, number two, what you have to do in my view is move toward public funding uh, of elections. Uh, I think it is just not appropriate that people have the money or the support that people have the money can buy elections.
5: Um, the issue of whether you will run for president um, and what that means for a presidential candidate to be here at the climate march. Number one, will you be running for president?
14: Well, number one, I would be here no matter what my thoughts were. This is, yeah, this is an issue I've been involved in for many, many, many years. Uh, you know, it's no secret I'm giving thought uh, to the possibility of running for president, getting around the country a little bit, but that decision is not going to be made for a little while. No
5: attending an event last night where you were speaking. Uh, The question of whether you would be running as a third-party candidate or as a Democratic Party candidate for president.
14: Well, that's something also. There are advantages and disadvantages of going both routes. Very difficult. Uh, On one hand, there is a lot of unhappiness with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. More and more people are looking to alternatives, looking to become independents. On the other hand, uh, from a practical point of view, putting together... 50-state, independent political infrastructure that ain't so easy either. So that's one of the issues that I'm looking at. But mostly here today, I am just delighted that we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people who say enough is enough. Uh, we've got to begin the process of reversing global warming.
5: Do you think President Obama is doing enough around the issue of climate change?
14: I mean, I think he is trying. I don't. I wouldn't say that he's doing enough. Uh, he can and should do more. Uh, but the major impediment right now is not Obama. It is the Republican. Party, and we've got to call them out on this, you know, and, and we don't do it enough. These are people who do not even acknowledge the scientific reality, because they're beholden the big energy money and the co-producers. That's where we have to be focused.
5: If you were president, what would you do about climate change?
14: Uh, we would move very aggressively uh, to transform our energy system, and we could do the same thing. Um, There is unbelievable opportunity in terms of weatherization and energy efficiency. The technology is there now for massive uh, efforts in terms of solar, wind, geothermal, uh, biomass done properly. Uh, We could do it. We really could do it. And clearly this is a global problem, not just an American problem. What we could do in the United States is provide the technology and the support working with other countries around the world. But this is a crisis we've got to address it.
5: There are scores of buses coming in from Vermont, yes. uh, maybe the most represented state per capita yes, in the entire right. country. Governor Shumlin recently said he would consider the state divesting from fossil fuels, a call that's being made by 350.org, another yep. Vermont resident, uh, Bill McKibben, your neighbor.
14: A great, I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, we went through this with tobacco. We went through this through South Africa. And I think it's a great idea. And I applaud the governor for uh, supporting it.
17: In the O R G three fifty. The O R G three fifty. The O R G gotta keep the temp low two degrees. Divest, 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 divest. I say divest, 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 divest. divest. You say divest, 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 divest. We must divest. We must divest, divest, we must divest. Do the math so the earth will last. Take the cash from the fox food stash. Fossil food, we got the tools. Boycott them dirty dudes. They killing our few. Sure, that's why we gotta do the math. Need help. All you gotta do is ask.
8: And I can tell you that the, the march yesterday, uh, I hooked up with Mike, Mike Malloy briefly. I was, um, not as mobile as, I would be at these things. I w- was with uh, Saul and Mila uh in tow. Nikki of course was with me as well. But um there was a, just a ton of people. I mean, we got to West 72nd Street around 11:30, 11:40, and then basically we were stuck about halfway between the, the march went down Central Park West. And started up around the mid-90s. And when I say started, I mean... It actually started, I think, uh, the mid-60s to low-60s. And the, the march did not move. There was 30 blocks of Central Park West filled up. And... I know that at uh, 72nd Street, we were blocked up until about halfway between, you know, uh, half a block. And by blocked up, I mean the street, too. Street and sidewalks. And we were there for a good hour and a half. Uh, so we didn't actually start marching until like 1.15 before we got on Central Park West. Uh, and we made it down about mm, 12, 15 blocks. It was going slow. There was a lot of people. And, you know, it's a historic march. There was a lot of people there. Uh, what impact it's going to have, it's hard to say. But, you know, when I uh, harken back to that uh, part of the talk that we had with Chris Hayes the other day, the real question here is not convincing people. Um, and that's why th- this flood watch, I mean, uh, flood Wall Street is is also so important. The, the notion of we're going to get to uh, 75% of uh, the country believes that climate change is real and demands action, that's irrelevant. The question is, can you have a social movement? That appears it will threaten fossil fuel policy down the road. And that appearance of that threat, will it then make people who invest in the capital needed to extract that fossil fuel from the ground over the next 20, 25 years? Will it make those potential investors afraid of investing in that extraction because they fear that there'll be policies that will inhibit their profit from such investments and it will make other investments more attractive, relatively speaking? That's basically what it comes down to. And then as that investment moves away from fossil fuel it also provides more ability uh, for governments to regulate fossil fuel because there's just not as strong of of incumbent interests
17: it's a beautiful world i see everything's differently it's a beautiful
0: If I'm one thing, I'm consistent. I am a fan of companies that make things simple, pleasant, cheap, and if I don't have to leave my apartment, then all the better. Well, today I get to introduce you to another great company. Their name is Casper, and they just may have cracked the code on designing and selling a great mattress in a way that blows the competition away. First of all, You buy this mattress through the internet. I know, I know, it's crazy. How can a person buy a mattress that they've never even laid on? But don't panic, they've got your back. You get to try out the Casper mattress risk-free for a hundred days, which beats the hell out of laying in a showroom mattress for three minutes while a creepy salesman staring at you. Shipping is free both ways, so if you decide you'd like to return it, the process is totally painless. Secondly, it turns out they have figured out how to make a pretty good mattress. It's made of a combination of latex and memory foam, and it beats my old mattress without a question. I had a memory foam mattress before, so I really didn't expect that this one would be much better, but it appears they actually know what they're talking about. Now, besides getting to try a really great bed made in America for three whole months risk-free, the other benefit of ordering your mattress online is that it is way cheaper than the industry average. No showroom markups or sales commissions so you can get a twin-size mattress for only $500 or a king-size mattress for nine fifty, dollars with all of the other sizes priced in between. And if that's not good enough for you, you can get $50 off your order by going to casper.com slash best and then using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best. Use the offer code best at checkout. You get $50 off your order and let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time.
17: It's a beautiful see, it's
9: beautiful world, I see.
18: Solar
4: power I'm is growing so fast me. that the traditional energy companies are doing everything they can to stop it. Solar power provides only 0.4% of all electricity in the U.S., but utilities are very worried about its growth, and as solar power technology continues to become less expensive, and more efficient, tens of thousands of Americans continue to get the photovoltaic panels up on their roofs. They're generating their own power. And not only are many households purchasing less and less electricity, there are these deals that are established in many states that allow those with solar power who generate more power than they use to sell back their excess power to the grid. And this really has mainstream, traditional utility companies upset. So utilities are now very aggressively pushing against those, uh, uh, I forget the name of them, it's uh, net metering, net metering laws, which allow the resale of excess electricity back to the grid. Uh, They want, utilities want to stop that. And uh, it's amazing because when we look at the fact that it's only 0.4% of all the power that's provided by solar energy, you would say, well, Why is this that big of a deal? But when you look at the fact that rooftop solar generation has tripled since 2010, you see that this could very quickly grow exponentially. The photovoltaic panels get cheaper. The installations get cheaper. You're able to sell excess energy back. The panels themselves are more efficient. This does not bode well for the traditional get our energy from coal utilities. And they are activating, Lewis, against those who want to continue to further solar energy, which is a really, really good thing, obviously.
0: They are going to try to halt progress in this country. And there are many places, yes, where you are able to sell your extra power back to the grid. But there are also places where you are being taxed extra for uh, having solar panels and for producing your own energy uh, it's a battle right now. Yeah, we've seen that in some countries where you
4: actually have to pay a, a tax that will make up what is essentially not uh, – uh, your your savings, you're almost making them up by having to pay a tax. And we, we're seeing this with trains, uh, pressure from the automobile and the airline industry to to not have faster and faster trains in the U.S., I'm hopeful that like with trains that the solar power issue will eventually be won by those who are on the side of progress and technology rather than the side of maintaining uh, uh, influence to prevent progress and keep dirty energy uh, the most prevalent
5: you know we're making
9: progress every day in the most profound and yet subtle ways The sleeping giant no longer slumbers Humanity is finally awake Oh, but it's not the end It's not the end We have not reached our final breath
6: There's a tremendous amount of frustration about why we seem so incapable of solving so many uh, uh, intransigent problems. And ultimately, you know, talk about it long enough and people start talking about the the enormous influence of corporate power and politics and how that system has to change. What makes me hopeful about this moment is that it isn't just that there's, you know, big climate demonstrations that the environmental movement is growing, it's that people from so many other movements are realizing that they can form common cause around this issue and that it has the the, the potential to solve other problems. um, You know, if we really take this crisis seriously, and allow ourselves to be governed by science, which puts us on a deadline. It says we need to turn this around by the end of the decade. Uh, and I think, personally, I think deadlines can be helpful. So you know, I think the issue of money in politics is a good example. I don't think it's, you know, it's the only issue that matters. But if there if, if we dealt with that, if, if if that was dealt with in this country, I think much more would be possible. And and a lot of what, what, what puts people into a state of despair is the fact that they don't see enough going on in in that area so one of the things that i would hope is that climate could sort of form an umbrella for different movements to come together who all have an interest in getting money out of politics um a- and, and climate change it says look we can't afford to lose this is an existential crisis um so if we win on that we all win um but, y- but you, you know
14: you want more than money out of politics you want a different economic system
6: Well, I think we need to get money out of politics in order for what most people want, which is a more just economic system. Um, They want real job creation, not just this mindless pursuit of growth that actually doesn't translate into good jobs. I mean, this is the interesting moment we're in is uh, is, is that actually more people are concerned about the failings of this economic system than they are concerned about climate change. And the fact that they're connecting the dots between the two, I think, is very good news because there's a huge debate going on in this country about inequality, about the fact that pursuing economic growth... Uh, and just short-term profits isn't trickling down for nearly enough people, uh, and there's a and, and and it's not just that that people's salaries are stagnating; it's also that their services are eroding. Um. So if we were to take climate change seriously, we would need huge investments in the public sphere, and that in turn would address inequality because you'd have better jobs, you'd have better public infrastructure, you know, better public transit, and the 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 people who that benefits most are the poorest people in society. And that's just you know one example. So. I think that, that that the fact that this sort of movement of movements moment is occurring uh, 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 might make uh, uh, listeners like Roger feel a little uh, should make them feel a little less hopeless. But the, you know, the the argument I make in my book is that the reason why we have failed to deal with, with, with this particular crisis, which is huge, uh, admittedly, it is in part because climate change hit us at the worst possible moment in the arc of history, in that it was the late 1980s when James Hansen testified before Congress, 1988, that was the moment when sort of we lost all plausible deniability and, and 87% of Americans understood that, that, that global warming, they knew what it was, the global warming was real, and that year, uh, in 1988, uh, the planet Earth was named Man of the Year by Time magazine, and there was this feeling, okay, we're going to deal with this. The next thing that happens is the Berlin Wall collapses, the free trade era begins. It's the triumphant moment for deregulated capitalism. That's a big problem because you do have to regulate uh, in the face of a pollution crisis. You do have to invest in the public sphere uh, if you're going to get off the fossil fuels that are the very foundation of the economy. Of course you do. It's a huge public works problem. process, and yet we find out about this at the moment when we're told that there's, there's something wrong with the very idea of government, that government is the problem, it can't be the solution. So it was the collision between that uh, right-wing ideological project and, and which really waged war on the idea of the collective sphere. You know, Margaret Thatcher said, there is no, no such thing as society at the very moment when we most needed to act collectively within our countries and between our countries. So what I argue in, in the book is that climate change suffers from a case of historic bad timing. Now, the good news is the do-or-die moment, you know, that the, this is a drop-dead deadline. We can't push this any further. We have to act now. It comes at a moment when the track record of that ideology is really in tatters. We know this. We don't know how to fix it yet, but we know it's a problem. Of the free and
14: market the, ideology, you're saying. Mm-hmm.
6: Exactly, which is why you have huge debates on, on inequality uh, and, you know, with books like Thomas Piketty's that d- document um, uh, uh, so strongly the way in which this this deregulated form of capitalism has systematically concentrated wealth at the top. So now we're not talking about theory. We're talking about a track record of these policies. And so... One of the things that I show in the book is that as people try to respond seriously to climate change, they have to challenge this ideology. For instance, in Germany, where you have a a, a phenomenal energy transformation going on, where now Germany has 25% of their electricity coming from renewable energy like wind and solar, in order to accomplish this transformation in hundreds of cities and towns across the country, um, citizens have voted to take back uh, control over their power grids, over their electricity grids from the private companies that 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 bought them in the nineteen nineties. They they have the they still have the democratic ability to do that in Germany. And what they found is that the private operators weren't interested in switching to renewable energy fast enough. So so voters in cities like Hamburg and also quite small towns decided to to take their energy back or to take their power back. Uh, so this is and this is happening now in North America and in places like Boulder. Uh, and so it's not that it's an ideological movement that's against private it's a movement that wants to move to clean, renewable energy, but they're finding that in order to do that, they have to challenge one of the core tenets of the free market ideological project, which is it's always better uh, to privatize. It's always going to be more efficient and more responsive. Not in the face of climate change, it's not.
2: Absolutely.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
17: It's almost as if in in anticipation of your column, the president spoke to the United Nations and he said that climate change um, is the biggest threat facing the world beyond disease. And we've got this major Ebola outbreak that the WHO is telling us is a real problem beyond terrorism. And yet the president seems mostly engaged with what's going on with the Islamic State in Syria and, and in Iraq. Um, and yet he says climate change is the biggest threat facing the world. So what do you make of all that?
3: Well, because it's almost unanimous agreement among climate scientists that that is a fact. And I think a growing segment of the population is frightened, justifiably. I mean, you know, every climate change report that comes out is more terrifying than the last, including... One of the latest, which says that the biosphere can no longer has the capacity to absorb CO two emissions. I mean, uh, you know that that Arctic ice is melting at a far higher rate. Um, so the facts are all in, and uh, and and it's you know it's hard for a reality based political leader at this point uh, to deny. The, the potential catastrophic effects of climate change, and yet at the same time, because the system is completely hostage to corporate power, and in particular to big oil, uh, gas, and and uh, coal, um, they don't do anything. Either because they can't, or because they don't want to. I don't know what their motives are, but they don't. They don't do anything, uh, and we don't have any time left. We don't have time to wait. Uh, either we radically reconfigure our relationship to the ecosystem as well as to each other, or, you know, we are going to have to, Seriously, begin to talk about the extinction of the human species.
17: I wonder where you situate. You've written very compellingly, and as you did in this most recent column, which is um, fr- from your speech that you gave it, in this panel in New York, um, about how both parties have sold out to various corporate interests, and, and, you, and you really can't trust the political process. Um, the coup d'etat is over the corporations. One, you you recently said to uh, Reason TV. I wonder where you situate the United Nations in that um, political context.
3: Well, they have been completely captured by corporate power, as anyone who goes to these climate summits will attest to. Um, There are corporate predators all over the place who seek to profit off of climate change. And um, in that sense, the, the summits, the U.N. summits have become as much of a farce as the you know, allegedly democratic governments that run countries like the United States. We saw a deep intolerance for any kind of legitimate protest uh, in Copenhagen. Uh, the U.N. security were removing the press. Uh, and then throwing all the demonstrators out so it couldn't be recorded. I mean, there's even <laughs> rules about what you can wear on your T-shirt. Um, so, unfortunately, the the elites who attend these climate summits uh, are, like the elites in Washington, uh, again, uh, captive to corporate money and corporate power.
17: Are there elites who get it that this is potentially bad for their business or or their future, their own personal, their children? I mean, or, or or are they just lost in the in the melee?
3: I mean, it's a hard question to answer because once you are cocooned within those systems of power, you you have a sense of invulnerability, protection. Um you cater to what is politically expedient or "quote unquote" practical. Uh, I mean, I think that power is an end in itself, and often severs people from, especially over time, uh, over the real world. I mean, these people don't live in the real world. They don't fly on commercial airplanes. They, you know, they live encased within their own bubbles. I. I I certainly think among the corporate elite, they're either blind or willfully blind. Among the political elite, um, you know, it probably depends on the politician. I I don't know how clued in George W. Bush was to much, including climate change. I think Barack Obama, who's certainly intelligent, must on a certain level understand it, and yet uh, both in terms of imperial power, in terms of Wall Street, in terms of climate change, he uh, will not challenge the economic interests. Those who profit uh, off of the exploitation of the planet and those who profit off of imperial wars are given carte blanche by the Obama White House.
18: So a new report out uh, about our atmosphere. Well, how are we doing? Let's find out. Atmospheric volumes of greenhouse gases hit a record in 2013 as carbon dioxide concentrations grew at the fastest rate since reliable global records began. Great! We're setting more records. The planet is literally melting. Okay. More details from Reuters. The volume of carbon dioxide or CO2, the primary greenhouse gas, emitted by human activities, was 396.0 parts per million in 2013, that 2.9 parts per million higher than in 2012, the largest year-to-year increase since 1984 when reliable global records began. The planet is literally on fire, (laughs) and here we are going to ISIS, squirrel. Oh, my God, what are the different terrorists going to do in that particular part of Somalia or Yemen? Oh, my God, everybody look over there! Concentrate! Now, what happens when we do those wars? Well, the defense contractors get paid, the oil companies. When there's instability in the Middle East, oil prices go up, their uh, profits skyrocket, and the list goes on and on. Well, some of the same oil companies and other powerful companies that are invested in the status quo... They don't want to talk about climate change because that hurts their bottom line. We'd have to regulate them and make sure that they did not put all this carbon dioxide in the air. So all of a sudden, we don't hear anything about that. All right. One more conclusion from Michael Girard, who is the WMO Secretary General here. He says, we know without any doubt that our climate is changing and our weather is becoming more extreme due to human activities, such as the burning of fossil fuels. Now that is from the World Meteorological Organization. There is no dispute. As you see on your television sets, panic over everything else in the world where people make money, right? There's no panic over this. What if ISIS takes over a little larger part of Iraq? What if the planet melts? (laughs) what about that what if the storms are more severe all the weather patterns are more severe what if the tides continue to rise those are not what ifs we're in the middle of it happening you want to yell at Obama for not reacting strongly enough to an emergency it ain't isis it's global warming its climate change and it doesn't affect the small part of the Middle East where we get our oil from it affects the whole planet (laughs) I got an idea what if we just change this to this there you go. global warming jihad it turns out the terrorists are coming and they're warming up the planet can we get anybody to pay attention then well, it's got to be better than what we're doing now so I hope that uh, reporters go and ask uh, President Obama at the next press conference what are you doing about the global warming jihad we demand an address to the nation immediately believe me If we heat up the planet and continue to do it at the rate that we're doing and continue to break the records that we are, we're going to do a hell of a lot more damage than ISIS.
0: My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time, and the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
10: Now you may be thinking, do we really need a march? To raise awareness about global climate change. I mean, it's an accepted scientific phenomenon pretty much everywhere. Here's why you need the march. It's accepted pretty much everywhere, but there's one place called... The United States House of Representatives Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. (laughs) This is true. Last week they held a hearing that they apparently recorded in 1971... (laughs) I guess that's the technology part of the committee name. On President Obama's plan to shrink carbon emissions 30% by 2030, the hearings Sisyphus, Presidential Science Advisor John Holdren charged with the impossible task of pushing a million pounds of idiot up a mountain. (laughs) Of course, like any avalanche, it began rather innocuously. Texas Republican Steve Stockman. The lead
14: scientist at NASA said this. He said that what ended the ice age was global wobbling. Is the wobbling of the earth included in any of your modelings? And the answer was no. When you have a model and you say we're going to leave out the most important impact of that model out of our theory and not talk about global wobbling,
18: how can you make projections?
10: What's up, scientists? Global wobbling, bitches? <laughs> he sees your so-called global warming and raises you a global wobbling. Explain that, Dr. Whitehouse.
11: Global wobbling, which refers to changes in the Earth's tilt and orbit, takes place on characteristic time scales of 22,000 years, 44,000 years, and 100,000 years. It is very slow. Global wobbling is a tiny effect on the time scale of 100 years in which we try to run these models.
10: I didn't know we'd be talking to an actual scientist (laughs) All right, Holdren, you ace the wobble warming Riddle me this
16: At what point a level of CO2 does
15: CO2 become damaging? At what level does it become harmful to human beings?
10: How can CO2 levels be dangerous when I can still breathe?
11: Vice Chairman Rohrbacher, I always enjoy my interactions
10: with you. Much in the way one enjoys playing peekaboo with a baby, or perhaps teasing a cat with a laser pointer.
11: I have to say with respect, that's a red herring. We are not interested in carbon dioxide concentrations because of their direct effect on human health. We're interested in them because of their effect, of their effect right. on the world's climate. Right. And climate change has so it's a red human herring. Health.
10: Well, then, I mean, why can we still breathe? That's what I'm asking. I mean, you can hear me, right? We're breathing. And it got more amazing as it went. Indiana's Larry Bouchon.
11: It's not about affecting the global temperature and climate change. There's public comments out there that that question has been asked and answered saying no. You should look at the, at the scientific literature rather than the public comments.
10: <laughs> With all due respect, Representative Bouchon, I suggest you get the Journal of Applied Meteorology and Climatology as opposed to the YouTube comment feed of Obama Lies 1776. (laughs) But here's where Bouchon gives away the game. Of all the
11: climatologists whose career depends on the climate changing to keep themselves publishing articles, yes, I, I could read that, but I don't believe it.
10: I do not believe the scientists because it is their profession, not their hobby. Well, since we're talking about the influence money might have on climate change opinion, it turns out Representative Bouchon's three biggest campaign donors are Murray Energy, Koch Enterprises, and Peabody Energy. And trust me, trust me, those three well-funded companies would love to disprove climate change to the satisfaction of the scientific community at large. So if scientists could be bought, these motherfuckers would have already made it rain in nerd town. Trust me. And again, I cannot stress this enough. This is the House of Representatives Committee on Science, Space, and Technology.
14: How long will it take for the, for, for the sea level to rise two feet? I mean, think about it. If your ice cube melts in your glass, it doesn't overflow. It's displacement. I mean, this is the thing, some of the things that they're talking about, mathematically and scientifically, don't make sense.
10: Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I I don't even know what to do with that. How far back to the elementary school core curriculum do we have to go to get someone on the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology caught up? Do we have to break out the paper mache and the baking soda so you can make a (laughs) volcano? Is that what we have to do? Is that how basic the science class was when you went? Nah, I don't need to know this anymore. I mean, for God's sakes. Look, here. Look, here, 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 look, look. Here's a glass of ice water. Hey, that ice isn't making the water overflow because it's already in the water. But imagine there's a whole bunch of other ice that's not in the water. It's on the land. You know, the part where the water isn't. And then when temperatures rise and the land ice melts enough to fall in, oh, it's everywhere! It's everywhere! Do you understand? Wait a minute. Global warming giant towels. (laughs) Ultimately, the whole incredible and by all appearances willful misunderstanding of how the scientific method has been applied to climate change models and the effects of warming can be, pardon the pun, boiled down to this exchange.
11: That uh, scare tactics like that, uh, you know, uh, is really appalling to me to use medical information to scare parents that their children about asthma attacks and scare people saying they're going to have heart attacks. I would argue that we should all, on both sides of this discussion, avoid scare tactics.
10: First of all, there aren't, there aren't both sides to a discussion. But he's basically saying is it is unfair. To talk to us about the scientific or medical consequences of our actions because they're scary and we really don't feel like doing anything about it anyway so from now on why not agree that science and the oil industry both have opinions oh and before you tell your kids to wash their hands after they take so they don't spread disease maybe we should also spend an equal amount of time hearing from big fecal
0: quick trigger warning that the following 10 minutes or so of three different voicemails are all covering the topic of intimate partner violence, and a note that the third voicemailer didn't ask me to bleep their name or alter their voice, but I chose to do that for the sake of prudence.
1: Hi, uh, I just listened to the latest caller's comments on women who find themselves in physically violent relationships, who uh, leave those relationships only to enter another physically violent relationship. Uh, I think she was completely correct in her analysis. Women who have only experienced violent relationships would obviously have a difficult time viewing relationships in general without taking into account their perspective. And often I'm sure their vulnerability puts them back in the same place. I just wanted to add um, the fact that men who are violent towards women uh, seek out that vulnerability. There was a couple studies that I read recently that I thought that were quite interesting and really related to this. Um, The first study um, I want to mention was discussed Gait, which is the particular movement of a person, particularly walking. Um, It studied male students in university who watched females walk and then um, noted their likelihood of selecting a walker for various advances. So the women with slow, short strides were linked with vulnerability um, in their personalities, and the male students um, reported that they would be most likely to target them for inappropriate touching. Uh, the second study is about psychopathy and victim selection and the use of gait as a cue to vulnerability. So this study um, also showed women walking. Um, it was a study of inmates who scored very high on the interpersonal and effective aspects of psychopathy. They were able to actually identify very accurately the women who were the most vulnerable of the group. And they actually reported having heightened interest in these women. So while there's definitely a part that we need to acknowledge that like women are choosing kinds of partners that put them in the same situation of violence, we need to understand that men are targeting them as well. Thanks so much, bye. Hi Jay, this is
7: Elka uh, in Fort Wayne. I'm gonna try to keep this in two minutes. I don't know if I can do it, but I'm gonna try. Um, this is a response to Tanya, or Tanya, um, in California, who called about, just with some additional thoughts about working with victims and survivors. And Tanya was very concerned that, you know, she may, her words and her statements may, may be misconstrued as being victim-blaming, but, you know, I need Tanya to go grab herself a cup of hot tea and sit down on her comfiest couch and put her feet up because, she has nothing to worry about, and um, people who might judge her statements need to just go have a seat, because Tanya is absolutely right. I agree with much of what she said. It is incredibly frustrating and challenging working with both, uh you know, victims and survivors and batterers, and it is incredibly frustrating and challenging seeing some of these people return after you know you thought you made some inroads after you you were getting somewhere after you thought you saw a man really beginning to challenge his sexism and his misogyny and his male privilege and all of his beliefs around why he gets to control and batter and use violence against women and then to have him return be court ordered again back into your program you know a year a couple years later it is incredibly challenging and same with victims and survivors it's so disappointing and disheartening at times when here comes that same person that you have so much hope for, you know, here she comes again looking for, or he, looking for services because somehow they're back in a similar situation. But here's the thing, and, and I think I mentioned this in, in the first message that I left. If we put our time and energy into worrying about or trying to change, you know, the behaviors and the choices and actions of, of victims and survivors, you're, you're gonna, that, that's just, that's a, a, an empty road to go down. It's an empty road to go down because we can't change. We can change anyone's actions or behaviors. All we can do as service providers is hope to get people to do, to do two things, okay? To look very deeply and begin to externalize and examine their beliefs and their self-talk around issues, people, places, circumstances that keep them stuck and keep them from acting in their own best interest. Okay, that's that's the first thing kind of in a nutshell. And then the second thing is, in terms of what service providers can do, is continue helping, building your your curriculum, your focus, whatever service that you're delivering. Make sure that that service and that curriculum and that support is built around helping people, particularly victims and survivors I'm speaking of, Helping them act, make the kinds of choices that will allow them to act in their own best interest. That is what it comes down to. It really is. Now, that victim or that survivor, again, they may be making choices and decisions that make no sense to, to me or to anyone else who has not been in that situation, right? But, again, if we focus on helping that person, meeting them where they are, and helping them begin to make the kinds of choices and decisions that will allow them to act in their own best interest, Then what happens is even if a victim or survivor stays in an abusive situation, she can at least or he can at least begin keeping themselves safe. They can begin doing some safety planning. They can begin the process, the very difficult and and hard process for victims and survivors. Of figuring out how to act in our own best interest—that really is what it comes down to. There's, there's just tons more I could say about that, but you know, I'm trying not to go. I know I've already gone over my two minutes. <laughs> but um, anyway, loving this conversation. Tanya, breathe, girl. Go have a cup of tea. Put your feet up. It's okay. Practice a lot of self-care because if you don't, you're going to burn out very quickly, and, and you're never going to want to step foot in your agency again. Thank you, Jay. Have a good day. Bye.
9: Hey Jay, this is from Indianapolis. I'm calling in response to the voice I had on your last episode about domestic abuse. Um, I was wanting to fill in my two cents because I <laughs> I am one of those women that... I, I catch myself being stuck in that cycle of repeatedly getting with abusive men. Um, the first one was my first boyfriend actually, I was like 18. And I was so scared to leave it wasn't until he tried to kill me the second time that I found the courage to just run and get the fuck away from that
3: situation.
9: And ever since then, I've been trying everything that I could think of to, you know, I keep telling myself, never again, I'm not going to get with these people. But, you know, I try to find guys that, like, talk to me like I'm a person. I keep... I'm, you know, I'm constantly watching my behavior to try and make sure I'm not giving away signs. Um, I'm trying. I don't know what to do. I just, you know, after like seven or eight years of just constantly getting like this, you, just, you don't know what to do anymore. And saying so like "Why don't you leave? Why don't? Why do you keep falling into this? This is your fault. You're an idiot. You're the crazy one." And I know I'm not crazy, but I. Doesn't I know I'm not crazy, but like, it's so hard when you just keep falling into it. it just, I don't know what it is. It never starts that way. It never does. Like, even my last boyfriend, I, I had to break up with him. <laughs> he raped me, and. I I couldn't believe it, I was so blown away. Like, I even went out on one last date with him afterwards because I kept trying to tell myself that that's not what happened, that, you know, he couldn't do that to me, I've been so careful. But that last date, I was so scared the whole time to tell him I couldn't stay with him because he's an abuser and this isn't safe for me. And, Uh, I tried to keep quiet, and the whole time he kept trying to you know, hold my hand and tell me he loved me and that everything was going to be fine. And the whole time, I just couldn't help but to think, how can you stand there and tell me you love me when you don't even notice that every time you touch me, I'm trying to not vomit out of fear? Just, I don't know what to do, and I've, I've looked, I'm trying to find papers and research, I've tried speaking with friends of mine. I've tried speaking with other people who've been through this, and we're just all at a loss, because there's no information. I'm, I'm honestly at this point now where I'm just gonna stick to one-night stands, and I'm debating on just wearing a niqab and wrapping my tits so I can walk around in public without men catcalling kind of calling me and trying to grab me in public, because it just drives me insane all the time. like. These guys don't realize that every time that they, like, grab me on the bus, that I'm probably going to go home and have a nightcare about, you know, past things because you've brought up so many issues. And I wish I was more insightful on what to do about the problem, but I don't know. I I just wish there wasn't such a stigma on talking about this kind of stuff because every time I try to talk about it, people immediately change the subject, or I've had people get up and just walk away from me when I've tried to open up some about my troubles, and I think it really just comes down to people's need to start, at least from a place of compassion, if we're actually going to be able to handle this with any kind of humanity and dignity, so thanks for doing this kind of stuff on the show. I think it's really important for people to hear this kind of stuff. Because a lot of people, I think, don't even realize what's going on to the person just sitting next to them. So, thanks.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And just to reiterate today, really thanks to everyone who called in and had their messages played on today's show. It was you know fantastic uh, set of messages today. And I I will tell you, this is the absolute truth. The number one comment I get far above any others uh, regarding the voicemail section is that they very often bring tears to people's eyes. And I I mean, I'm not surprised. I hear these messages too. I I know what they sound like. And uh, But that says to me that there's something special going on here that I'm incredibly honored that people feel sort of safe and willing to leave the types of messages that they leave on here and allow me to play on the show and, and share with all of the listeners. I mean, the, the level of conversation and the intimacy that is involved is far beyond anything I ever conceived of when I thought to myself, hey, why don't I create a voicemail line so people can ask questions or make comments? So yeah, just huge thanks to everyone who who chimes in. It It really... Makes for a special part of the show. Uh, now, I, I don't have much to say in response to those messages. I, I feel totally unqualified to to chime in uh, too much on the topic. So, what I'll do instead is really, really awkwardly transition to just a minor announcement. I have um, it, it's it's sort of a minor announcement, but it has international implications. So my announcement is that I have finally implemented a good idea that was first suggested years ago. You know, anyone who's listened to the show for a long time knows that when I hear a good idea, I, I, I just, I like to wait about two to four years and then I pounce on it. And uh, that good idea is that I have finally implemented links to the amazon.com box on the website for the Canadian and UK Amazon stores. Uh, sorry if that was a little anticlimactic, but, uh, Canadian listeners, UK listeners, and, you know, any, any listeners who use the UK store, I know it's not just for the UK, uh, you can now bookmark an Amazon.com link where your purchases through those stores will benefit best of the left. And I just have one little favor to ask if, if you are one of those early adopters and, you know, you're up there in Canada or over in Europe somewhere and you're about to buy something and you use that link, uh, just do me a favor just this once just send me an email and let me know you've done that because that'll help me know whether or not the link is working because then I can actually check and make sure because like it's a new link it's a new system I'm not sure if I did it right so just you know let me know that you bought something I, I can check the records and if something was purchased well then I'll know that they're working and we'll all live happily ever after so those can be found right at bestofleft.com. There's a big button that says Amazon. There's now three little tabs with little flags. I think you can figure out which flag belongs to the country you live in and so on. And uh, so it's all it's all very easy. Thanks in advance to everyone who takes advantage of those. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in In this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
9: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained stories and of-